Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Eric Kapitulik. I've had tons of amazing guests on this show, well over 100 now, billionaires, astronauts, professional athletes, world-renowned entrepreneurs, and they've shared their insider secrets for success. They've offered everything from top book recommendations to success hacks to action items that you can use today to see results immediately. If you're like me, you love this kind of stuff. And if you're like me, you want to get the cliff notes, or I guess these days they call them the spark notes. Well, you can get access to the action plans from your favorite guests like Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena from episode 27 or Navy SEAL Mark Devine from episode 45 or maybe fitness guru Tony Horton from episode 85 plus other amazing tips and tactics to help you get clear on how to get from where you're at to where you want to be. I put all this in one place because you're busy and you want to get what you need quickly so you can move on with your day. Here's what I want you to do. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get instant access to everything I just talked about. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, there are three dots on your screen. Just touch the three dots, select view full description. There you'll see the link to download all the incredible resources and action plans that I just mentioned. Now for today's guest. Born and raised in Connecticut, Eric attended the U.S. Naval Academy where he was a four-year letter winner on the lacrosse team. Graduating in 1995, Eric went on to serve in the Marine Corps as both an infantry officer and special operations officer. As a platoon commander, he led a team of 20 covert operations specialists on numerous special forces-related missions, including long-range recon patrols, hostage rescues, high-altitude jump exercises, ship takeovers, and gas oil platform takedowns. How about that for a resume, man? I thought wrestling was cool. In 1999, Eric and his platoon were in a helicopter crash that resulted in the death of seven Marines. In response to this tragedy, Eric created the Force Reconnaissance Scholarship Fund to benefit the children of his fallen men. In order to raise money for the fund, he's participated in eight Ironmans, the Canadian Death Race, the Eco Challenge, and the American Barkabiner Ski Marathon. Eric has also summited five of the seven summits, including Mount Everest. Since leaving active duty, Eric has received his MBA and founded his company, The Program, with the goal of providing both athletic and corporate teams with the best leadership development and team building services in the country. And his upcoming book is titled The Program, Lessons from Elite Military Units for Creating and Sustaining High-Performance Leaders and Teams. Man, we're going to dive into that. 
And as usual, if you don't have time to listen to this entire episode, or if you hear something you like, but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And by the way, you might recognize Eric's name. I had him in episode 154. And man, there's just some guests who I connect with. I love their story. Uh, and there's just more to tell. And you can't, you can't get to it all in one episode. So we got Eric back. And uh, Eric, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. I really appreciate you uh, having me back. Man, it's just there, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much here. I mean, geez, I want to talk about you know all the Ironmans. I want to talk about the Everest expedition. I want to talk about your book and in leadership. Um, there's just so much, and and you know, there's so much I said there in the bio. Um, and one thing I, I do want to talk to you about more, and I think it would be would be kind of interesting to hear, and and you know, kind of. Um, just the the experience in, in in the helicopter crash, Eric. Can you take us? Can you take us to that? Um, just uh, the 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 helicopter crash, and you know, I got a follow up question to that. But can you take us back to that day and and, and the experience of of uh, the tragedy that happened? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I I'm very I feel so blessed and fortunate that I had the opportunity to attend the U.S. Naval Academy for for college. But outside of being called daddy, my favorite title is is still Marine. And I appreciate that the Naval Academy gave me the opportunity to go in the Marine Corps. But being a Marine and serving in the Marine Corps is, is really one of my life's great honors. And while a Marine, I was first an infantry officer, and then I, I tried out and was selected to be a platoon commander at First Force Reconnaissance Company in First Marine Division in the Marine Corps. After about a year of services, I'm sorry, a year of schooling, I was afforded the opportunity to become a platoon commander of 5th Platoon First Force Reconnaissance Company. We do a number of different missions in special operations, but but the main one of the key ones at that time was something called the Vessel Boarding Search and Seizure, or VBSS. Myself and 10 Marines are in one helicopter, my platoon sergeant, my right-hand man, he and another 10 of my Marines, 10 of my teammates are in a second helicopter. We launch, we go into a 60-foot hover over the ship that we're practicing taking over on that particular day. It was a month before we deployed. At that time, we're wearing 50 to 75 pounds of gear, weapons, equipment, and ammunition. We're carrying M4 carbine, long rifles, 45 caliber pistols, shotguns, blow torches, and demolition gear. Rather than being in a 60-foot hover, our helicopter came in too low and too fast and struck the side of the ship. The helicopter pilot, recognizing his error, pulled on the collective, which would typically give lift to a helicopter. But on that particular day, the back left wheel of our helicopter was stuck in this thick metal netting that surrounds many cargo vessels, mm. causing the helicopter to become vertical in the air, invert on itself, and then plunge into the Pacific Ocean. When it did so, all of my teammates and I, all of my Force Recon Marines and I, we were all immediately knocked unconscious. And we woke up sometime thereafter, 
still wearing 50 to 75 pounds of gear, weapons, equipment, and ammunition with no idea on how to exit from that sinking helicopter and with no oxygen. So my Marines and I, we pulled and fought our way through the helicopter as it sank, looking for a way to exit from it. And then, and then I started to swim. And as I share with audiences of mine, when I present and, and do a keynote address about leadership and attacking adversity to corporations throughout America, uh, the thing I share with my the audience always, and I would share it with your audience as well, is that only when I started to swim that I feel true fear. Like when I think back to that moment when I first started to swim, I still get scared thinking about it. And the reason is the Pacific Ocean is a dark body of water and my teammates and I, we were deep down in it by the time that we exited from the helicopter. We're still wearing all of our gear and equipment Although the helicopter blades had shorn off, the helicopter engines are still turning, so it's causing cavitation, it's causing bubbles to surround us. And regardless of how physically or mentally tough we may think we are, none of us can hold our breath indefinitely. Eventually, if you try to do it here this afternoon, eventually your body just naturally gasps for air and oxygen rushes into your lungs. Well, that's, yeah. that's the case here, except if you're 200 meters beneath the ocean surface. Then when your body gasps for air, salt water goes rushing into your lungs, and then you gag, and then more salt water goes rushing into your lungs. That's called drowning. And my teammates mm. and I had been underneath the water for so long that we were drowning. Do you say 200 All meters? It, it was a long way down. You know, if yeah. you want... I. I I use that more as a as a um, as a highlight to highlight just how deep we were. Yeah. Um, I didn't exactly have a measuring stick, though. Admittedly. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> so, right. Okay. You're deep. You were deep, and and uh, you know, so we're drowning. We've got all of our gear and equipment on. There's bubbles that are surrounding us, and. I still get scared thinking about that moment because I will remember that moment to the day I die in my remembering that as soon as I started to swim thinking, I hope I'm swimming in the right direction. Whew. And yeah, that, that, that will never leave me in, in any event. Uh, I was <laughs> swimming in the right direction. Eventually I could see sunlight filtering down into the ocean and then a few moments after that, a safety boat picked me up and I survived that particular day. Unfortunately, to say the least, six of my 10 Force Recon Marines on board the helicopter lost their lives. My goodness. Uh, yep. That, I mean, I don't even know what to say after that. I mean, that's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what a, a life changing experience, what a, what a, uh, I mean, nightmare is not even the, you know, it's not even half the word that uh, the, you would need to describe something like that. But yeah. so, so Eric, that, that moment um, has defined your life, I think in, in some ways, at least after that, right? So you, you've, you've done these Ironmans, you've climbed Mount Everest, you've done these things. Um, 
in part, I guess, for, you know, obviously raising money, you know, you're, you're a family man, you know, the importance of that and, and how much that, yeah. uh, you know, losing these men, uh, how much that affected those families. You set up the scholarship fund. Uh, so tell us about like, you know, go, you know, some of those, those things that you've gotten into, like the Ironmans and the Everest and the ski marathon, et cetera. Right. Yes. Uh, so within a month's time of that helicopter crash, we had six new teammates join our team. We deployed to the Persian Gulf. We had a successful deployment. While I was there, I decided that I would raise money for a college scholarship fund so that should the children of my deceased teammates and their mothers choose to go to college one day, uh, they'd have the financial ability to do so. And then then I had to figure out how I was going to raise money for for that scholarship fund. And, and the way that I thought that I would do so would be through my participating in the world's longest endurance events, climbing the world's tallest mountains, things, Jim, that I already enjoyed, excuse me, things that I already enjoyed doing, but now I figured I could do them for a bit more selfless purposes. I would like to stop there, though, and highlight to to all of your listeners, uh, I don't know why or how it's occurred but it feels like adventure for the sake of adventure's sake has somehow lost its allure. That every time you go climb a mountain, there has to be some scientific reason for it or social reason or raise money for some cause. And and, and I appreciate it. I, I was able to raise a lot of money doing those things and help out the children of my Marines and their families. But boy, I would suggest to anybody in your audience, even if you don't have a cause adventure for the, for adventure's sake, that's life changing. Yeah. But in any event, um, so I decided that that's how I would raise money for a college scholarship fund for the children of my deceased teammates. I had already done one Ironman. I had actually completed an Ironman one month prior to the helicopter crash. I I enjoyed it. And uh, so I decided when I got back from deployment uh, to do others. And I was just very fortunate that ESPN and Ironman had seen the video of the helicopter crash and it had followed me through Ironman California as a human interest story. A few few months after that, NBC Sports followed me through Ironman Hawaii, which is the world championships. Yep. And since then till today, I've competed in and completed eight Ironman triathlons. I've been fortunate enough, fortunate enough to climb five of the seven summits, the tallest peaks on each of the seven continents. Um, a few years ago, I stood on the summit of Mount Everest. And now, as the founder and president of the program, we donate money to the Force Recon Scholarship Fund. So that's awesome. That's been the journey. So. There's a great quote from a former wrestling coach, a head wrestling coach at University of Minnesota. He always said, you get tough by doing tough things. Like, you get tough by doing tough things. And, you know, you want to be tough, do something that's hard, right? And, and you know, going back to adventure for adventure's sake, I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's the value of doing something hard, uh, testing yourself. Uh, and, man, just, just getting out and, and doing something that's hard. Um, there's a lot of value in that. I, I find a lot of value in that myself. And I personally, personally love that kind of stuff. Um, Absolutely. so Eric, I want to ask you, how do you lead through such a tragedy? How do you, so you lose six of your 10 men 
And then a month later, you're deployed. So you've got to deal with loss. Okay, so you've got grief. And then you've got new people, right? You got like, you know, onboarding, for lack of a better term. I'm sure there's a better term for that. But you got the onboarding of these guys, right? Mm-hmm. And and you've got now you got this quick turnaround. And then we're we're shipping mm-hmm. out again, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what kind of? I mean, it, it takes it takes a hell of a leader to to make that happen. I mean, what what are some of the lessons that you either learned from that or or things that you really had to apply that you share with your clients now? Number one, without hesitation, I, I almost am, am, I, I want to jump out of my seat to give you the answer about the number one thing that I did. I was really lucky in having the greatest platoon sergeant that you could ever have. I was really lucky having great team leaders and great Marines who survived the crash and Marines who were on the second helicopter. I appreciate that when people hear of things like that, they immediately will will think about leadership. Jim, I think in, in the country, and I don't know why it's happened in families, and I think it started in families, that somehow being a great teammate has taken some sort of, it's looked almost down upon, that everybody has to be a great leader. The people at the program don't feel that way. And we, my my teammates and I at the program, our mission is to develop better leaders. We're the first people to tell you that if our children are known as the greatest teammates on every team they're ever on, oh my God, will I be proud of my children. Yeah. The specific yeah, so it's not just about leadership. It's about it's about being a great teammate. Maybe first. Oh right? man. I, I had such great teammates and and other and other Leaders. My platoon sergeant certainly is a leader of that y- unit. Um, my my team leaders. My my commanding officer. Uh, my commanding officer gave me advice that I will remember all of my days, which is don't ever forget your guys don't need another friend. They need a platoon commander. I'll never forget that. In times of adversity, they got enough friends. They still need a leader. Uh, me personally, Jim, I'll, I, let me share. So, so first and foremost, yes, thank you, Gunnery Sergeant Tom DeWitt. That as a platoon sergeant in, in working with me and me working with him to get and ha- and all my Marines in that platoon to get six new Marines to join that unit, make sure that those Marines do not feel like the new guys. So often we work with teams we do this in college and pro sports all the time, where for some reason, the freshman's job is to pick up the balls at the end of practice. The, it's the freshman's job. It's the new guy's job to, to clean the bus when everybody else gets off the bus. Mm. That, that makes no sense to me yeah. or to us at the program. That's the leader's job to do that. The the. The last thing we need to do with new guys is go out of our way to make them feel like new guys. In our unit, going to the Persian Gulf, if you've got new guys and old guys, you have two different teams and then somebody else is going to die. Well, that's true on any team, figuratively or literally. Instead, we need to be one team with one heartbeat. The way we do that is that for the new guys who are joining the team, 
to do everything they possibly can to integrate themselves into that unit. And for the team members that are already there, do everything possible that you can do to make sure that the new guys do not feel like new guys. The me personally, I'll share a story with you that that I I, I don't share very often, if if at all. In the helicopter crash, I had compound fractured my leg. I had a full cast on my leg. Well, our unit still had to, in our pre-deployment workup, we still had to do that vessel boarding search and seizure mission. And But I had a full leg cast on, so I couldn't be there with my guys. And the overall commander had told me, he said, you know, Cap, hey, come up with me in our helicopter. This is the commanding officer and, and you know, all of his staff. Come up with me in my helicopter during the event so at least you can watch from our helicopter down on the boat when your guys do this mission. And readily, I agreed. And the night before we were doing this mission prior to our deployment, I didn't sleep. Because all I kept thinking about the night before was the only reason why I so readily agreed to go on the commanding officer's helicopter, it it wasn't a cast on my leg. It's because I was afraid. I was scared to go back on that same helicopter and do that same mission that six of my Marines had just died and the rest of us on board barely escaped with our lives. Yeah. I was scared. And our, the day that the, the morning got up the following morning, I was on the commanding officer's gen on, on his helicopter with the rest of his staff and everybody else. And we're all in the same flight deck. And I can see the other two helicopters that are going to go do the actual mission. They're pretty close by. And at the last minute, I, I, I talked to the commanding officer and said, sir, if it's okay with you, I'm going to go on the other helicopter with my Marines. Wow. And I got off of their helicopter, got on to the one that my Marines were on. Now, I couldn't fast rope down. That would have been made things more more dangerous for, for my Marines. But I talked to the pilot real quickly and I said, hey, look, once my guys fast rope down onto the onto the slide down a rope that's attached to the helicopter that that's fast roping Yeah. that hey, when my guys get done fast roping down, uh, land your helicopter on the ship and I'm going to, and I'm just going to walk off the back and, and he, and he agreed to it. But when I got onto the helicopter initially and my Marines looked, looked at me and I looked at them that was, if, if you want to say as a leader, what is something that I did, as I said, having a great platoon sergeant, having great Marines, that's the, that's the most important thing. But if there's one thing that I did that I go back to that I feel helped us move forward was getting on that helicopter with my Marines not asking them to do something that I wasn't willing to do myself. I was scared. Yes, yeah, so were they. 
And that helped the that helped build a level of trust that still pays dividends to this day. It's still why some of those Marines work with me now at, at my company. Yeah. Wow. So some of those guys are still working with you now. Yes. You know, in leadership, you have to do hard things, right? Um, I think sometimes we look at leaders and we think they've got it. The, you know, things don't bother them. They don't have fear. They're not bothered by hard conversations, but they are right. You are, you gotta, you gotta face those fears. You've got to do those things in order to, to build the trust and to be, you know, not only the leader, but the teammate that you need to be right. And I think a lot of people look at leaders in, in leadership and think that, that that's, it's just easy for leaders, but it's not right. You know, being successful at anything isn't easy. Right? We were talking about that, you know, before we hit record, you know, it's like just about writing a great book. It's, you know, if it was easy, everybody do it, but you had to, you had to do something hard. You had to do something that you feared in order to, to be the leader that you wanted to be. Jim, you, you brought one thing up about, about being, you know, having difficult conversations with people. It actually hurts my feelings when people say, oh, no, it's not difficult for you to have difficult conversations <laughs> because I wonder what sort of facade I put up <laughs> regularly to make people think that I somehow enjoy or that even at the very least having difficult conversations with people is somehow not tough for me. Yeah. Uh, the I think a I don't know if it's the, if the correct term is a lot, but I think many people will use that as use excuses for why they don't do things that somehow, well, it's easier for that person just naturally. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I you think know, that's a lot of the case a with a lot of hard things that people don't do is like, they think it's just easier for other people. Jim, I mean, I know for, for you and your background, right? Some people say, Oh, well, it's easier for you to work out. You, you enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. 20, I lost 22 pounds in two and a half days once to make weight for wrestling, which I think if you're not a wrestler, a lot of people maybe say, ah, that's not even true. It's not even possible, right? For a human being to do that, but it yeah. is, I did it. And, uh, yeah, but I, I do remember, you know, and I've heard people talk about, yeah, well, it's, it's easier for you. You're used to it. You don't get used to being, you don't get used to that level of dehydration, that, that level of, of suffering. You don't get, you, you don't get used to it. You do it for a reason, maybe more driven, more motivated, more, you know, had a, a, a stronger desire to achieve a certain goal, a certain outcome. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's not easy. It, it never is. It never is. You just have to discipline yourself to go and do it. That's it. Mm. Yeah. You got to choose the hard path sometimes, a lot of times. Yeah, every time. <laughs> every yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, it's the truth. Um, so Eric, okay, I wanna I wanna make this more um, real practical for the listener. So they're saying, okay, I'm a teacher in a classroom, or I'm a manager at a company, or an entrepreneur, right? And I'm not leading a pl platoon of of Marines. I'm leading uh, an athletic team, right? I'm a coach. Uh, a coach or a manager or entrepreneur or whatever. And 
you know, I can't lead the same way that you can, right? The same way that you can lead a group of Marines. And, you know, you say, don't be, you know, sometimes, you know, they don't need another friend. They need a leader. Well, when you're in a corporate environment, you know, you're sitting next to this, per- this person and you're going out, you know, on social, you know, occasions and whatnot with these people, you become friends, right? How do you draw that line as a leader? And, and, and this is maybe, maybe I'll give you, I'll give you a little bit of an example that is, was relevant in my life. So as a wrestling coach, I was a division one wrestling coach and I had the opportunity to teach a class of students at the university, Slippery Rock University. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, there was men and women, you know, college students in the class. They were PE on the PE teacher track and they weren't wrestlers, right? These are just students. Mm-hmm. And the way, the way that I talked to my wrestlers in that same wrestling room was, was very different, had to be very different than I talked to students. And I, str- I struggled with that, right? You know, I, you could talk to, I could talk to my, to my men, to my wrestlers in a different way than I had to talk to these students. But I really struggled with that transition just because you can't yell at them in the same way. You can't have the same level of, uh, uh, of expectation of them just because they're, they're, they're different human beings. They're not, they're there for different reasons, different motivations, et cetera. So anyway, I don't, it's a semi-relevant example there, but how do you make that? How do you make that, that leap, right? You work with a ton of corporations, you work with coaches and sports teams all over the country. How do you make that leadership relevant for, for those people who are in a different environment than, than a Marine? Right. Yeah. It's a great question. And it's a, it's a, it's a very good example, Jim. The what what I would highlight, though, using your example, is you're in a wrestling room. It's loud. The, the your wrestlers are, you know, wrestling each other. There's there's battle going on. You know, actual yeah. physical battle going on. There might be other people talking in there. So maybe you're you know, yelling, talking, speaking very loudly, right? Yeah. Um, Music in the background. While in a classroom, you, p- people, your students would look at you like, you know, <laughs> dude, take it down a notch, right? Yeah. Like that's pretty much what they told me after like the first class session, <laughs> right? But but what I would venture to set guess is, but in either of those situations, though, the leaders are still communicating with their team in a respectful manner. You're still treating people True. with respect. It just the volume might be different on it for because of the chosen battlefield that you're on. But I mean, there's been countless examples, very prominent examples when athletic coaches who are not communicating with their team with respect are getting fired really quickly. And as the leader, the if you were to ask me, well, how does somebody communicate with their team on an assembly line in a manufacturing shop. Yes, it probably is different than in a financial management firm. Yeah. The nuances of it, volume, tone, is it direct communication? Is it a conversation? Well, the battlefield kind of dictates those things, but the idea of I'm still going to communicate with you with a level of trust and respect and, and as a human being, 
that's universal, regardless of, of the of the battlefield that yeah. you've chosen to fight or your people. Um, and I think too often many audiences say, OK, but I'm, I'm a teacher or um, insert whatever you might say. I'm a I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm not a Marine platoon commander. So how do I lead my unit if I'm not a Marine platoon commander? Yeah. Well, the the truth is, I think that that's probably more a reflection on not understanding what true leadership is or certainly what leadership looks like in the military. And, you know, here's the leap. Here's the leap that I just made, Eric, is <laughs> sounds stupid to say it, but Marines are people, too. Wrestlers are people, too. Um you know, you look at, you know, again, you know, my, my background's wrestling. So I'm going to go there for a second. Dan Gable is, you know, one of the, he's kind of up there with the, the John Woodens, the Bear Bryants of the world yeah, of in terms of, you know, best yeah. coaches of any sport all time. Yeah. And, and the one thing that from the outside looking in, everybody thought that Dan Gable just pushed his guys so hard that they puked every practice. And, and, and that's just how he made them good and tough. When you, when you actually hear from Coach Gable and you talk to him about it and you learn from his wrestlers, who competed under him, it was, it was very different, right? He treated them all individually. He knew what their motivations were. Uh, he understood them. There was, a, there, was, there was just the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals are the same, whether it's Marine, a wrestler, or uh, a millennial who just got hired at your firm, or somebody on the factory assembly line, or, or, or whatever sure. the case might be. I guess the, the fundamentals are the same. There has to be a respect. There has to be communication. There has to be clear goals. There has to be trust. There has to be mutual understanding. All these things, these, these are the fundamentals that are applied in any leadership situation, right? It's, it's 100% right. I mean, my, my thing is, is well, you think we can communicate differently to our Marines? Okay, then go treat a Marine disrespectfully. Sure, See what happens right. to you. Yeah. Right? Like... No, it's the same. Yeah, you're not going to have the outcome you want. You you can't take you can't go into battle like that. That's true. That's a hundred percent. And so the specifics that that we teach, and I, I we talk about them in the book specifically, is value based leadership, a value based culture. That what are your values specifically at the program for Team Capitulic? We're selfless, tough, and disciplined. That's who we are. We have standards that reinforce those core values. Daily standards. Those are behaviors. How do we behave? Every Jim, every team, parents, oh my God. There's not a child in the world that's not given goals by their parents on a daily basis. Every family has goals. Every team in the world has goals. Championship caliber families, championship caliber teams, organizations, regardless of the battlefield, also have standards. Everybody's got goals. Championship teams have standards. Goals are performance-based. It's what we want to achieve. Standards are behavior-based. They reinforce our core values. It's how we behave while achieving those goals. If we don't achieve a goal, hey, just reattack it tomorrow. My son Axel, he's, he, he does ultimate obstacles. It's an indoor. It's great. It's awesome. I, I would recommend it for any of your listeners. Ultimate uh, obstacles? 
ultimate obstacles. Now that's the place. It's American Ninja Warrior sure. type yeah. of places. Love My it. place is called Ultimate uh, Obstacles. It's it's just north of Worcester in a place called West Boylston, Mass. But yeah. um, the the point of my story is, is that there's obstacles all over the place. Yeah. He's a, uh, he does these ninja classes there. I love his coach and yeah, at the class, guess what? He doesn't get every over every obstacle. It's mm. a goal of his, but he yeah. doesn't reach it. Yeah. Okay. Try again tomorrow. That's it. That's what you do with goals. Try again tomorrow. Standards that reinforce core values standards which are behaviors, failure to behave a certain way, well, that carries a consequence. Jim, we generally, we live in the greatest country on earth, I believe. Our society has challenges. What's the biggest challenge? It's not the kids these days, Jim. It's us as parents. We're the ones who are different. And how are we different? Everything is a goal. We have no standards. There are no consequences anymore. Yeah, yeah. Man, what what a great insight. Yep. But as leaders... As leaders, how are we doing things? Jim and my Force Recon platoon, God, some of the guys, I had the greatest friendships ever. But I was still the platoon commander, though. And they knew that I was going to make every single decision I ever made with the best interest of our team first. And that might be harsh on some level, but it also allowed us to have a great level of trust. They knew what how I was going to they could trust how I was going to decide. And as leaders, leaders get held to two standards, accomplish the mission and take care of your teammates. How do you take care of your teammates? By making every decision you ever make, thinking about what's in the best interest of the team. Mm. Do those two things. I don't care what battlefield it is. You'll be successful. Yeah. That's a fundamental to live by, whether you're a parent coach, entrepreneur, teacher, leader, doesn't matter. That's right. Eric, you've written a leadership book. There's a lot of leadership books out there. Why this one? Why did you you decide to write another book on a topic that has been written on, written about for, you know, for, for eons? And what can the audience, what can my audience expect to learn from your book, The Program? Thanks. A few things. Number one, let, let me address the issue of, so why would, why buy our book, Vice, other leadership books that are there, out there? Num- number one, the authors of it, myself and Jake McDonald, my teammate, there are countless leadership books that have been written by people who have never led a horse to water. Yeah. They've, they've heard how other people have done it, but they themselves have never done it. It, it gives you a certain level of insight when you know the feeling that's in your pit of the stomach, when you have to get off that helicopter and go on the other one that gives you some empathy. Yeah. The second, there's people who have written leadership books straight out of the military when They've never worked in corporate America. They don't truly understand that there are differences. There are nuances between the two. 
Yes, the basics of being a good leader in one and the basics of being a great teammate in another are similar, but there are nuances between the two. We've had the opportunity to have both of those experiences. As far as what the audience will learn, will first, the fallacy, well, as I just talked about earlier, our book is broken up into seven sections, each section being one of our key learning objectives at the program. Number one, creating and sustaining a championship culture. We will spell out how to create and sustain a championship culture. I mentioned it earlier in this call. How do we select and choose and figure out what our core values are? How do we define what our standards are? Easy to figure out what goals should be. Very challenging to figure out standards. We simplify. Then how do we stay committed to those goals and standards? We then talk about what does it mean to be a great teammate? You can be a great teammate and never be a great team leader. But if you want to be a great team leader someday, you have got to be a great teammate first. We discuss what it means to be a great teammate and how to develop yourself and your teammates into being better. We do the same with be, with team leader and being a great team leader. How What does it mean to be one? How do you develop yourself? How do you develop your subordinates to be better team leaders? We then discuss four attributes of great teammates and great team leaders. Number one, being physically and mentally tough. Two, not making excuses and not letting other people make excuses for us. And third, working hard. We define hard work at the program. It's our trademark saying, one more. Figuring out what our one more is as an individual and as a team and make a commitment to doing it each and every single day. Finally, we discuss what it means to be an effective communicator. We discuss the fallacy of leading by example. That term has been watered down to mean nothing in American society. We discuss why. We discuss the importance of communication. Effective communication. Being an effective communicator in our organization, having the ability to effectively communicate up, down, and sideways in our organization is key to success. How do we do that? How do we implement it? That's what we have highlighted in the program. And we draw on our experiences, our, our and our teammates' experiences at the program as in the world's harshest and harshest environments in combat. We also draw from our own personal experiences. We're all fathers and husbands, mothers, wives. We draw from those experiences. And then specifically the story that we use as a backdrop to physical and mental toughness is my climbing of Mount Everest. Eric, I can't wait to read this book. It's uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a book I think is going to have a lot of impact on a lot of people. When does it come out, and how can people find it? Thanks. So it comes out September fourth. Now, I, 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 I let me say that the worst thing you can do as a leader is ask your Marines 
ask your children, ask your coworkers to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. That it, it, it's, it's horrible. Don't ever do it. But now I'm going to ask your audience to do, do it because I am never a pre-order person. <laughs> Just remind me when it's coming out and I'll order it then. <laughs> right. Well, now that I've written my own book, we've written our book, I'm sorry, that uh, I realized the importance of pre-orders, that pre-orders feed um, on themselves and it's really important. So you can go to Amazon right now, you can go to Barnes and Noble right now, and you can go to the program website and order and pre-order your book. I would very much appreciate everybody doing so. Uh, but it comes out and it's called the program. You can Google it by the pro that name, or you can Google it by my name, certainly. Uh, but it, it's released on September 4th, uh, of this year of this fall. All right. So September 4th and, and we can pre-order. So for the listeners, I'm going to have links to the program website. I'm going to have links to the Amazon link where you can buy the book and where you can pre-order the book. So let's Thanks. do this. Let's let's place some pre-orders. Get your pre-order in for this book. Listen, you don't know Eric. I, I don't know Eric all that well. You know, he and I've you know we 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 Skype. We do a video Skype before we did, we've done both of these interviews. We found out that we have uh, we have a mutual friend in common, uh, and, and just have had some conversations through them. And um, I, I've uh, the utmost respect for this man uh, and for the organization. Uh, actually, I know some coaches who have actually hired the program uh, and have heard the the words that they've shared about what they do. It's just transformational. Um, this book is going to be transformational for, for anybody out there who is in a leadership role in any way, shape, or form, uh, or if you're just part of a team, right? Even if you're not the leader, right? But, but most of us are leaders in, in, in some way in our lives. So uh, I challenge everybody to, to place your pre-order. Again, I'll have that link in the action plan. You can go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Uh, and uh, what's, the, what's the link to your website, Eric? It's theprogram.org. Okay, theprogram.org. So you can go directly there as well. Eric, man, wow. This was just uh, eye-opening, awesome, and I hope it just whets everybody's appetite for the book. Look forward to that coming out in September. Thanks so much for making time to come on the show again, Eric. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I really appreciate it. I hope your audience enjoys it. Yeah, likewise. Good luck. Keep up the good work. And for everybody out there listening, as always, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. 